Already a wonderful morning, all these different things we've been able to do in celebrating the Lord's Supper and singing some songs that magnify our Savior and heart is already full. Before we jump into the text this morning, though, I just want to give an announcement to throw it out there. It was already said, but I want everyone to hear it again. Right after church, men, uh, men, you here this morning? The men here? Okay. Right after church, stick around. You don't even have to move anywhere to be at the meeting. Okay? You could actually stay right where you are and show up. And I would like to remind you that we're going to talk about the men's equipping group. I mean, to, to miss this meeting, you have to, act, you have to like, actively leave. So, you know, we're going to see who's walking out the door. And Now, I really want to invite you to come and be a part of it. The men's equipping group has been a blessing in my own life to get around like-minded men who want to learn and grow together. And uh, to really invest deeply in these relationships has been critical. It's also a way that we see men being developed into leadership roles and being helped to be godly fathers and husbands and uh, shepherds of the church. And so, men, I'd like to invite you to come and be a part of it. Um, grab your copy of the scriptures, and you can open up into Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be beginning to wrap up this section. I say beginning because we're not quite going to wrap it up. Next week, Lord willing, we'll wrap up this section on marriage. Last week, I opened up the sermon with a story of how I asked Ashley's dad if I could marry her, and I want to, that was the summer of 2007, and we're going to fast forward a year from that date to the summer of 2008, June 20th, the hottest day of that year that Ashley and I got married. And we were at a church over in Upland, not too far from here, and Ashley walked down the aisle in her white dress, and she came up here, and we stood next to each other side by side, and her father was involved, and a good friend, uh, our old pastor Jordan, was involved in, in some prayers and a short message. And as we stood uh, up there before the congregation, we were told to face one another, and as we faced one another, we were given vows to say to each other. Vows that we were saying to each other, but also recognizing that we were saying them before a congregation, but even more significantly than that, that we were saying those before God. And as we said that Ashley had tears running down her face, I think they were happy tears. Um, But it was an emotional moment. We were excited to commit ourselves. I said this, I said, I, Eric... Take you, Ashley, for my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I made a covenant. We made a covenant together. And many of you in this room have done the same thing, very Similarly, you've been up in front, you got married, and you said some sort of vow to your spouse. You pledged lifelong allegiance to your spouse. And if you've not been married and you've been to a wedding, um, you, anytime, even if you have been married, whenever you go to a wedding and you watch two people up before the church make some sort of vow to one another before God, it's moving, isn't it? It's, it's a powerful thing. It's an expression of the design of marriage that God has given us. 
And there's something intrinsically beautiful about it that we resonate with, that it touches us deeply. Permanence in marriage. Covenant, commitment in marriage. These things are beautiful realities. And they're not constructs that we've made up somewhere along the way. They go back to the very, very beginning. And Jesus, in our section, as he's describing the nature of marriage, refers to permanence. The idea of lifelong, holding fast, covenant commitment. And that is our topic this morning. So you remember, if you're there in Mark chapter 10, just to remind you there in verse 2, that the Pharisees were testing him. They're asking him a question about divorce. They want to trip him up. And Jesus brings them back to the Old Testament, all the way back to the very earliest chapters there in the book of Genesis. He reminds them of God's design in male and female He then tells them the kind of blueprints of marriage. Verse 7, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Uh, This is what we talked about last week, that there's a leaving that happens and a cleaving that happens and a weaving of our lives together when one gets married gets married that's kind of the essence of marriage and now we're going to look at that final verse of this section this paragraph verse 9 that says this what therefore god has joined together let not man separate what god has joined together Let not man separate. As you can see, what Jesus is saying is built on some theology. In fact, of course, everything Jesus says is built on theology. But this is an evidence, another evidence, that theology is eminently practical. Some of us wrestle with theology wondering, is this practical? Does this matter at all? Like, is this some abstract things that really don't have any impact on my life? Jesus is building a case for marriage and he's using doctrine. He's going to use theology. And basically what you're seeing there in verse 9, look at the words again and just meditate with me on them. What God has joined together. He's making a statement about God, isn't he? He's saying that God was active in designing marriage. He's saying that God was at work in bringing a man and a woman together. Don't you see that? That you made decisions, and you may have pursued your spouse, and that you might have somehow managed to arrange your life to be in a point where you would marry your spouse. And yet here, Jesus is saying, God joins people together. What God has joined together. To understand what Jesus is saying, we're going to peel back the theology behind his statement, which I think will help us have a deeper, more robust understanding of our marriages, okay? And actually of life in general. And we're going to look at the theological concept of providence. Providence. One theologian defines providence like this, that God upholds, preserves, guides, and governs all things. Everything that exists is overseen, governed, guided by a sovereign God. Hebrews 
just to put some uh, passages under this to make sure this is clear. I don't just want to assume this. This is what the Bible teaches. I want to see what the Bible says. Look at verse, or you don't have to turn there. I'll just rattle off some. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Is there anything that is existing outside the kingdom rule of God? No. As Spurgeon liked to say, there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. Nothing is existing out of the sovereign kingship and rulership of God. Psalm 135 verse 6 says that whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says, In him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, listen to this, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 1.11 is that God has this eternal purpose called the counsel of his will. And he works out in time and in history everything to accomplish that purpose. Everything that has ever happened has God overseeing, orchestrating, upholding, preserving, guiding, and governing those things to the appointed ends that he created them for. Now, I think there's a lot of people, like Christians, that will affirm this. They'll, they'll, of course, God is sovereign. God's in control. Uh, you know, things get rough, and we encourage one another. We say, you know, God's in control. Now, I just got to trust God's in control. And yet, they have a, a little more difficulty understanding that specific things are part of God's sovereign, providential ruling of the universe. The, the specifics. It's like, yeah, I get it. And sometimes it's, it's the idea that God is almost like this captain of a giant cruise liner. And he's making sure that the cruise liner is going to get from A to B. You know, he's going to make sure it gets to its final destination. But whatever happens in the specifics on the way there is not really his concern. He doesn't really have sovereignty over those things. And the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches a meticulous sovereignty, a meticulous providence that he rules over all events of history, big and little. In fact, Job 37, if you want to turn there, I'll read a few passages, a few verses from Job 37. In Job 37, Elihu is responding to Job who has complaint with the Almighty. And in chapter 37... I'm going to read the first 13 verses of this chapter, and you can follow along. And as you read, I want you to kind of listen and perk up for the descriptions of God's sovereignty. What does God rule over according to this chapter of the Bible? Elihu says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Watch this. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. 
Then the beasts go in their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture and the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands of them or commands them on the face of the of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Winds, rain, ice, lightning, animals, all governed and guided by the voice of the Almighty God. And if you were to read Jonah, about two years ago we went through the book of Jonah. And what did we encounter about God in the book of Jonah? That he is sovereign. That he speaks and he speaks a storm into existence. He commands a fish. He appoints a vine. He calls a worm. He calls a scorching wind. He calls the Ninevites to repentance. All things are subject to the authority of the omnipotent God. And he rules over all things according to his sovereign providence. This is our God. And it even gets down to the very last details Proverbs 16.33, the lot, you can imagine the, the, the roll of the dice, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Try to keep that in mind next time you're getting blown out in Monopoly, or your army's getting obliterated in risk, that every roll of the dice is according to the sovereign, omnipotent plan of a mighty God. You don't want to complain or say, you're lucky. You say, this is God's will. <laughs> and you might say, well, what about people? I, I get it. Inanimate objects like dice or lightning. Sure, God does all that. But, but is God sovereign over the choices of people? You know, free will, you know, questions come up right here. We start wondering, what about God's overseeing involvement in all things? But, but what about people's choices? Don't they make choices? And here I want to introduce you to another theological concept that is sometimes referred to as concurrence. Concurrence. And let me explain to you what concurrence is. Concurrence, God's concurrence, is his operation with created things causing them either directly or indirectly to act. You say, what does this mean? I think it'll be fleshed out when we point to some examples. Joseph. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Men's Equipping Group last year, we read the story of Joseph. We read through it pretty quick. It should be there in, somewhere in your mind to remember what happened to him. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was left for dead. Then he was sold into slavery. At that point, he was falsely accused. He ended up being imprisoned. And over the course of events, he ended up as Pharaoh's right-hand man that God used to bring salvation to many people by preserving the grain so that they could make the food available to those who were suffering in the famine. And at the end of that story, as it's kind of coming to its climax, there's this interaction with Joseph and his brothers. And they finally come back together after many years. The brothers thought Joseph was dead or gone. They didn't know what happened to him. And they finally meet him and they realize that he's now been ascended to this position at the right hand of Pharaoh. And they're amazed. They're a little bit ashamed. What have we done? And Joseph turns to them in Genesis 45 and says to them this. He says, now, he's speaking to his brothers. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He's saying that they did it. He's not saying that they did not. 
And he goes on to say, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You see what's happening here? Joseph holds two things in both of his hands. On one hand, brothers, you sold me here. And on the other hand, God sent me here. The will of the brothers to eliminate Joseph and the will of God to send Joseph to a position where he can then save many peoples are working concurrently. God is working in and through the actions of even sinful people who are trying to destroy Joseph. That's concurrence. You could think of it also as happening anytime you read about an attack in the Old Testament where God's people were given the responsibility to enter the promised land and they were supposed to eliminate the enemies who were living there. And God said that they were to go and they were to trust him and they were to fight. And yet, when they went and they fought, who gets the victory? It says that the Lord gave them the victory. In other words, there's military decisions, tactical decisions, decisions of soldiers as they go and fight. And at the end of the day, all of it is attributed to God's will and God's work. Were there people making decisions and doing it? Yes. Was God over, sovereign over it? Yes. Concurrence. You could even think of it as that book that you got in your hands, the Word of God. If I were to ask you who wrote this? And you were to say, well, there's Peter, he wrote some of it, and Paul, and, and Moses, and, and the prophets, and I would respond to you, you're right. That's exactly correct. People wrote these things. Men wrote these things. And if you were maybe to say on another day, well, the Holy Spirit inspired it. This is the Word of God. God wrote this book. You know what? You'd be right. Because as men were being driven along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter or Paul or Moses are making word choices and writing sentences and composing paragraphs, as they're doing that, God concurrently, through their decisions, is ensuring that his words are being written down. Concurrence. You see this? God's will and human will coming together so that God's plans are being accomplished. This is evidence of God's sovereignty over every single event that ever happens, including the decisions of fallen people. And you might see this the most clearly in the very death of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Peter is preaching to the Jews who were guilty of killing their Messiah, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this is, listen to what Peter says. He says, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Whose plan was it? It was God's plan. According to his eternal plan, the foreknowledge of God. God's plan was that Jesus would be sent, that he would come and live and die and rise from the dead so that his people could be saved. That was the plan of God. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't plan B. This was according to the plan of God. And listen to how Peter finishes the sentence. He says, Jesus delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified. You are responsible for crucifying the Messiah, he's speaking to the Jews. And you killed by the hands of lawless men, concurrence on full display. God is acting through and in the free acts of people. He had a definite plan, perfect foreknowledge to give his son, to die for the sins of his people. And in and through it all, people are acting, making decisions, doing these things. And therefore, they are responsible. Say, where are we going, Eric? I thought this was about marriage. (laughs) Every event, every person, every civilization, every marriage 
is an act of concurrence. Providence. God in his sovereignty, upholding, preserving, guiding, and governing. And that is why you can say, no matter how dark the circumstances you're in are, I'm here because God sent me here. Just like Joseph said. I'm here because God in his sovereignty has brought me here. This is such a comfort when you let it sink in. There might be wrestling with it. And at the end of the day, we need to humble ourselves and let the word of God be an authority over us. And when we do, we find great consolation for our lives in the truth that God is sovereign over all things. The Heidelberg Catechism demonstrates what kind of comfort we can find in the providence of God. Question number 27 in catechism is a Q&A, like a question and answer that teaches theology. And question 27 goes like this. What dost thou mean by the providence of God? What is the providence of God? It's defined this way. The answer goes, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass and rain and drought and fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his heavenly hand. And then, the follow-up question, 28, is, well, what, is that? what advantage is it that we know this? What advantage is it to know providence of God? Listen to this answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Nothing can ever fall upon us that is outside the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. That is comfort for us. And so we go back to think about what Jesus said. Think back with me what Jesus said. What God has joined together, let no man separate. What God has joined together, Your marriage is an act of God. Your marriage is underneath his rule. And all that has happened, all decisions you made and whatever happened to allow you two to join together in this covenant bond of marriage, it is as a result of God's governing your life. It's not an accident. Say, well, my my marriage is, is really hard. Go back to that question 28 of the catechism. It's hard. What do we do? Well, if we believe God's providence, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father. I want to unpack this in three ways. There's going to be three implications for our marriages. Because of the providence of God, we we really got to apply this because Jesus roots our joinedness on the reality that it is God's work who brings us together. What God has joined together, he is the one doing the action in the verse there. And so let's look at three implications. Number one, you need to see your marriage as an act of God. Everything that led you to marry your spouse is an act of divine guidance. Go back and think of all the decisions that were made in your life 
or even the decisions that were made when you were a a kid. Think of the decisions your parents made. Think of the decisions of where they chose to live and where they chose to raise you and how they chose to raise you. Think of those decisions that your grandparents made that you had nothing to do with, uh, where they lived. And then go back to your ancestors. Why is it that you were born when you were, where you were? There's countless decisions you had nothing to do with. That all along the way, God in his sovereignty is guiding and directing his fingerprints are all over it. The divine hand was there all along. Your marriage is no accident. And even if you go back in your mind and you go, but man, I've made some foolish decisions. Man, my past was riddled with bad ideas, sinful behavior, and I shouldn't have been married, and I made this decision, and I did all these bad things, and bad things happened to me. Do you know that like Joseph, you can also, you could say with him, you could say that God, though there were things that happened that were evil, that God intends it for good. That God is at work. That there is concurrence. Even your bad decisions, even the decisions you didn't think things through, even foolish decisions. Do you know God was in and over and guiding in all of those things? Your marriage is an act of God. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. We make bad decisions. We do foolish things. And in and over all of those things, God is drawing the story of his glory from the beginning of history until the end, and he will use us, and we are all to fall on our knees in humble submission and say, God, you're in this. From time to time, you'll talk to someone whose marriage is just rough. It just happens. It's hard in this fallen world. It's no secret that marriage can be one of the most difficult things you ever do, and sometimes the temptation is to begin to believe that maybe God doesn't really want this for me. Maybe, maybe I'm not meant to be in this kind of misery. Or you start playing around with this idea, I, I married the wrong person. This is not God's will. I was supposed to marry that person and I messed it up. That train has gone and now here I am stuck somewhere outside of God's will. Or sometimes we'll get even more spiritual about it. We'll go, oh, I've just been really praying about my marriage And just God has revealed to me it's not his will to be married to this person anymore. There's an easy way to figure out if you're supposed to be married to your spouse. Go check the marriage certificate. Which name is there? That's your spouse. That's who God paired you with. That's who God joined you together with. And the implication that he'll go on to make this this statement as a result of God having joined you together, he says, let not man separate. That it's not your prerogative to separate something that God has built, he's put together. So first, you've got to see your marriage as an act of God. Secondly, you've got to see, and this is an implication of the first, you've got to see that your marriage is for God's glory. God joined you together for a purpose. Why does God do all things? All things are done for his glory. For his glory, he created the world. For his glory, he sent his son to redeem his people. For his glory, he will bring us home to heaven to rule and reign with him for all eternity. For his glory, he brought you and your spouse together that you might together bring him the glory due his name. That you are to worship and honor him in your marriage and your marriage is to be a living, breathing reflection of the gospel itself. God brought you together for a purpose and that purpose is for his glory. Think of the damage that is done in a marriage when that is 
backwards. Do you think that your marriage is about getting your needs met? Have you begun to operate as if your spouse is, to, is supposed to be your need meter? Every need you have is you go to her and she's got to or go to him and he's got to meet every need that you have. You know what that'll do? That'll crush your spouse because she cannot or he cannot possibly meet every need that comes your way. They'll be crushed under your expectations. And the other thing it will do, it will leave you empty because your spouse cannot possibly meet every need that you bring their way. God has arranged marriage not that we would have every possible need met, but that together we would encourage each other to go to the one who can meet our needs, namely God himself. That we would encourage each other toward Christ. Some people get, go ahead and they get married and they think that they really love the person, but in reality they've adopted a worldly idea of love. And that worldly idea of love is that I'm marrying you because you make me feel good. You're really good at making me feel good, and I'm going to marry you because you make me feel good. Well, what happens when they no longer make you feel good? I'll start emotionally tuning out and maybe start looking elsewhere and maybe start questioning the marriage at all. You start thinking all these things when in reality, that spouse was never meant to be the one that ultimately meets your every desire and your every need. It is God and God who's alone able to meet those needs. And if you're trying to look at it, your spouse, you're going to end up miserable. Because they cannot satisfy. You are, if you're going to build a marriage, and this is where it gets counterintuitive, a biblical marriage is built not by focusing on the marriage, but on focusing on God. When the spouses are focused on each other, trying to extract from each other what they think they need, they end up breaking each other. But when the spouses together are focused on God and his glory and his honor... They end up loving each other like they've never loved each other before. So sometimes the counsel that you have to give couples is, hey, get your eyes off your spouse and put them on Christ. You're so concerned about the way they hurt you. You're so concerned about the way they let you down. You're so concerned about the way they don't perform. And you just end up creating more and more conflict and tension in the marriage. What if you got your eyes off your spouse and you just said, how can I glorify you, God, no matter what they do? How can I honor you in this situation? As hard as it is, I'm living for your glory and your honor. And whatever ends up happening in this relationship, I'm leaving it at your feet because now I'm living for you, God. And the analogy is the triangle. Some of you have heard this before. We need to hear it again. Every married couple needs to remember that each one of us are like the bottom points of the triangle. And God is the point at the top. And if we are distant from each other, it's because we're not close to God. And if we want to grow closer to God, what do we got to do? Like points of a triangle, we got to get closer and closer to the Lord himself. Fellowship with God. Live in communion with him. Live in obedience to his word. And what happens in your marriage? Your marriage is strengthened because it's built on the right foundations. A marriage-centered marriage won't last forever. A God-centered marriage is a right foundation. That is the way we are to build our marriages. Why? Because God put us together for his glory. Now, Here's the third implication. First, God did this. Second, it's for his glory. And third, it's for your good. God, in his sovereign rulership, joined you and your spouse together for his glory and for your ultimate 
good. Yes, God gave you that wife or that husband in that situation because his goal isn't that you would have every need met by him or her, but that he is doing something far more profound in your life than making it easy. He's doing something often we don't like in our lives. That is, he is working for our purity and holiness. He's going to work to deepen our faith and commitment to him. He's going to teach us that nothing else satisfies but him and him alone. I like how one author started his book on marriage. He asked this profound question. He said, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And I think there's a little bit of a false dichotomy there as if those two things are opposed. The reality is when God works for your holiness, he is working for your highest joy. God is at work in your marriages. He gave you that spouse spouse for this time for you, particularly designed for you so that not that it would be easy, not that you would have every one of your needs met, but that you would be put in a situation where you can thrive and grow in holiness. And if it's hard, then God sovereignly oversees that. He knows it's what you need. If it's joyful, then God has given you a gift In all things, in either way, whatever it is, in trial and tribulation, in sickness and in health, we rejoice in God. Because God knows what we need, doesn't he? He knows what's good for us, and so he gave us our spouse on purpose for our good. For our good. Do you believe in the goodness of God? Isn't it true that the character of God is on the line here? And if we bicker about our wives or our husbands and we complain to God and we grumble, and yet here the scripture is saying that God is the one who joined us together, if we're bickering and complaining and grumbling about our spouse, isn't that saying that we actually don't think God is all that good or all that wise or all that competent? In other words, isn't it really dishonoring to our maker when we complain about the marriage situation he's put us in? I like what the, uh, the Puritan John Flavel said about providence that's directly applicable to marriages in his little book, Keeping the Heart. He said, if you could see how God in his secret counsel has exactly laid the whole plan for your salvation, even to the smallest means and circumstances, could you but discern the admirable harmony of divine dispensations, their mutual relations, together with the general respect they all have to the last end. Had you the liberty to make your own choice, you would, of all conditions in the world, choose that in which you are now. Let me translate that. If you were to be brought into heaven to be with God and to see from his perspective and to know all that he's doing and to see the interconnectedness of every relationship and how it affects all people and to see the goals that God is working in every human relationship. In other words, if you were to have the infinite wisdom of God and then God were to say, now choose your life circumstance, you would go, oh, I see what you're doing. I choose right where I am because I see now. That where you have me is the best possible place for me to be for your glory and for my good. Complaining is a slap in the face of God 
who is good and sovereign and who is doing good in our lives. So one of the, or three of these implications of this idea of providence is this idea that God has done this for his glory and our good. And these are doctrinal realities we have to build our marriages upon. And it is upon the idea of providence that the next point comes up. Let not man separate. You see that in the text? Let not man separate. If God has been the one in his divine wisdom and goodness and love has brought you and your spouse together, who are you to rally against God and declare him unwise and to separate from the one he's brought you together? Let not man separate. In other words, what Jesus is getting at and why he went back to the very beginning of the Bible is to show that from the very beginning, God has always intended that marriage be a lifelong commitment. The Pharisees were not living that way, but that's the design of Scripture, that marriages are meant to be permanent. Marriage was invented by God. Divorce was made by man. It's actually kind of interesting to think back, where's the first divorce in the Bible? Where, Where do you first see divorce in the Bible? You don't see God describing it and giving you, here's what you do, here's this step, here's that step. You don't see any of that. You see it first in Leviticus 21, verse 7, and it's being spoken of as an already existing reality. In other words, we don't know who got the first divorce. We don't know how it happened. We do know that some person at some point invented this thing, and it got passed on to the point where Moses is writing the Pentateuch, and it's already an existing reality that Moses has to write these regulations so it isn't out of control. Divorce was invented by men, marriage by God, and marriage originally designed, what Jesus is getting at, is to be a permanent thing, a lifelong thing. Let no man separate. Husbands and wives, let this sink in. That you are building a life together. Men, do not leave your wife. Stay with her. Love her. Leaving will be rebellion against God. It'll be emotionally and physically harmful for you and your family. There is havoc that comes when families break Wives, stay with your husbands, remain committed, divorce, there are grounds for it that we'll cover next week, but it is always the result of sin, because the original design is permanence. What God has joined together, let not men separate. This is why, just on a practical note, if you're married, It's helpful to think of your marriage as long-term and to plan that way. To plan that way that this is lasting forever. It's not helpful to think that this is some stepping stone to something else. That would be against all that Jesus is teaching here. And yet sometimes marriages are just living in the moment that they're not thinking about cultivating something that will last for their lifetimes. You see this happen, we mentioned last week, child-centered families that the parents are so focused on their kids, they actually don't cultivate anything between themselves. And what happens when the kids move out? I've actually seen this happen with people close to me where the kids moved out and the parents realized they actually didn't like each other at all and they got separated and potentially divorced. Because they weren't focused on building what God intended for them to build is that lifelong covenant marriage. 
Leaving sometimes happens not in a moment, but over the years when slowly and subtly, perhaps first emotionally, there's a separation degree by degree, inch by inch, little by little, and finally at the end you see it, it's often sad, decades into a marriage, it falls apart, and the reality is that they weren't holding fast to one another, they were separating, but the separation took course, took a span of years. So how are you cultivating a marriage that will last to the end? How are you working on building something that can endure a companionship and a friendship and a covenant marriage that will make it through. Just playing survival mode all the time, it's going to be really hard to establish that. Build into your marriage and establish that rebar you need and get the help from loving friends in your church that can speak the truth and love and build you up and help you out and resolve in your minds to be committed. Let me give you two examples, one negative, one positive of this. The negative example, it made the news a number of years ago when uh, Pat Robertson, uh, chairman of CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, often hardly Christian at all, though it does broadcast. He, he shocked many of his Christian viewers when he declared on a question and answer phone call session, he declared that it's okay to divorce your spouse if he or she has Alzheimer's disease because Alzheimer's is a kind of death. That was his rationale. And so here you have your spouse suffering from a disease that is eating away his or her brain. And he's saying, you have the right to just go ahead and leave. Is that the kind of covenant commitment that Jesus is referring to here? Let me give you a different example. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of a Bible college and a seminary. And under his leadership, both institutions were thriving. He and his wife were in their 50s. Energetic, ready for some decades of serving together. They had seen good things happening and they all was growing when all of a sudden he began to notice his wife was not operating in the way she normally had. It was almost unnoticeable at first, telling the same story twice in a day, losing her train of thought as she had a conversation, struggling to plan out the family meals. You can began to become something of an issue and he brought it to the seminary board and began to tell them there's something going on with my wife I need to get her checked out and sure enough things began to get harder eventually she lost her ability to talk to people her energy and happiness went away and he began to realize I got to make a decision there's a decision before me can I continue to lead these institutions and care for my wife The seminary board decided to make an arrangement so they had a helper at his home all the time so he could still come into the office. He could still do his work while she stayed home and had help and wasn't working out very good. She wanted to be with him. She didn't want to leave his side. She would escape 
she would travel a mile. It was about a mile to the office, and sometimes she'd run back and forth several times during the day to the degree that her feet would be bloody from so many trips back and forth. She just wanted to be around him. She couldn't speak. She couldn't converse. She had no memory of her vows. She had no memory of even some family members, but she just knew that she wanted to be by him. And he knew, he began to realize, it became more and more clear to him that this is not going to work. I can't keep running these institutions with my wife this way. And when the time came, it was crystal clear what he would do. He didn't even have to think much about it. He went to his board. He said, I resign. I resign. My wife needs me. When he was asked about it later on, he wrote an article describing the situation He said this, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before, in sickness and in health, till death do us part? She had, after all, cared for me almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would still not be out of her debt. And so there he laid down his job, the job he loved. He laid down prominence. He laid down status. He laid down the great team he loved working with. He laid down the influence he had over hundreds of students to go love his wife who could not love him back. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church gave himself up for her. The measure of love is not the warm fuzzies you feel all the time. It's not that emotional sensation you have when she walks in a room. That'll come and go. But are you willing to continually give and give and give and lay down your life as you lead her again and again to Christ? No matter if she can never return the favor, can you love like Christ? Can you live for her as Christ lives for the church? That is what you are called to. Wives, the test of your love is not how he makes you feel. Are you willing to commit to be faithful to that covenant, to be loving him and keeping him as long as you both shall live, even if he never returns the favor? If God has joined you together, let no one separate what God has brought together. In the parallel passage in Matthew 19, the disciples hear this, and you know what their response is? They say to Jesus, if this, or if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry in other words, they got what Jesus was saying, and they said, I don't even think I should get married if, if i got to remain committed. Remember, they're coming out of a culture where if you wanted to get married, and you wanted to get divorced a little bit later because you had, you know, some reason, you could. And now Jesus is saying, God has joined you together. Let no man separate. And they're going, well, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. Because this is too hard. And I think they were getting the point. Is this hard, church? No, it's impossible. Apart from the help of God. To love 
as Christ is calling us to, in sickness and in health, in the ups and downs, till death do us part is impossible without the grace of God. It is a high standard. You cannot do it, but with God's help, can you do it? Yes, absolutely. You are abundantly provided for church, and you are able, by God's help, to establish marriages that reflect His glory, His honor, His gospel to the world. You are able to do it because God abundantly provides for you, His children. And so I don't want to leave on the down note of this being oh so hard. I want to leave on the upward note of yes, it's hard, but God has given you all you need for life and godliness. Has he not? Has he not given you his spirit to indwell you, his word to guide you, his church to help you? He has. All things pertaining to life and godliness are yours in Christ. Now remember this. What happened 2,000 years ago? God sent his son, Jesus Christ. To live the life we could never live because all had failed to live righteously. He lived perfectly. And though we are all guilty of sin, Jesus volunteered to make payment on the cross for sinners. And though we all deserve death, Jesus conquered death by rising from the dead. And on that cross, He bore the weight of the sins and guilt and shame of all his children, everyone who would ever trust in him. And then fast forward to your life. At some point you were walking in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the world. You were dead. You could not save yourself. And God in his omnipotent sovereign grace spoke life into you, gave you the gospel, raised you to life brought you to himself, granted you faith, put you in his church, adopted you forever. Is God for you or not? He is for you, church. He loves you. He is committed to you. He is never going to leave you nor forsake you. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, you have God omnipotent with you. And if your marriage is hard or if your marriage is awesome, the good news is, is you have God Almighty who is for you and willing to help you and invite you to come to him. Whenever there's a time of need, come to his throne of grace where he will give you supply. We are like fish in the ocean and God says, drink. You'll never run out of grace. You have everything you need. Keep coming and coming and coming to the great Savior. He will never turn you away. He will never leave you shorthanded. He always lives and ever intercedes for his bride, the church. And if you could see your sin and your failures, and if there's conviction over that, come to him now. Find the grace and forgiveness in your time of need. And he will by no means leave you cast out. He will welcome you and forgive you and cleanse you, heal you. It doesn't mean life will be easy. But when God is for you, what do we say? Who could stand against us? What could stand in our way? Could anything separate us from the love of God in Christ? No. This is how we build marriages for God's glory. 
humbling ourselves, saying, this is too hard, Lord, but you have provided what I need. If you've joined me together with my spouse, I will not separate. Rather, I will trust that you give me everything I need to get through this. It may not get easier, but I have the divine resources that I need to make it through. Let's pray. Lord, I know that marriage is hard and there are seasons of darkness in marriages. But even now, I know that there are marriages here that are just struggling. I know that those who have had great marriages will go through seasons of difficulty, distance, tension. It has happened, it will happen, it is happening. We humble ourselves. Those of us who are married, we say, Lord, you've done this. We submit to you. And we choose not to separate by your grace, not to separate by degrees, inching away imperceptibly. Lord, help us not to do that. Help us to remain faithful hold fast, and to regularly come before you desperate for the resources only you can give. I pray that those who are really struggling, they would find help not only from you, but from their brothers and sisters, that they would be able to receive the care and counsel they need, that they would recognize that they're not alone and that they can open up and be vulnerable and transparent and that we would be able to receive those struggling without judgment, condemnation, with love and tenderness and compassion and care. And Lord, last, we just pray that you would establish strong, lasting marriages in our congregation. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.